just good to be reminded, Father, of your affection toward us. That line, the guilty pair down, bowed down with care, that's about Adam and Eve. It's about our first parents. All of those years ago, you set your affection on us all those generations ago. And now in Jesus, we come before you as your children. And so, Lord, just thank you that your love cannot be measured. Thank you that it is high and wide and broad and deep. So as we turn our hearts and minds toward you today, Jesus, help us to hear from you, Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have a seat. If you have a Bible, you can meet me in Acts chapter 16. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, by the way, uh, we're going to pray for Caleb and his wife, Vanessa, and their boys next gathering at uh, the 1115. But Caleb and his family are moving to South Carolina. Um, and so, you know, give him a hug and a high five. We are now taking applications for Kyle's table movers. Uh, so see me after. Um, I was just starting at a church a handful of years ago, and uh, the comment was made, and it was something like, oh, well, you're going to bring people. And the assumption behind that was, I think, something like, he's young, he's outgoing, he has some gifts, he's not ugly. Uh, so people are going to show up as if people were like just waiting to join that church if only the pastor was young and at the time under 30. And The assumption that we operate with as the church in the States in particular is let's find a leader of incredible competency and the people will come. It's like the field of dreams, right? If we build it, they will come. We build it on a single person, often male, on his gifts, on his personality, on his ability, and in the process, we excuse the character flaws that kind of rise up from time to time. We excuse them in the name of, look at the fruit of the ministry, look at the gifts, look at what's happening, aren't the good things happening? So he may have this problem, she may have that problem, uh, but we're going to let it slide. And so we keep relying on competency to the detriment of character, and over and over and over again, we are flabbergasted when that person implodes. Over and over and over again, we are flabbergasted when that person implodes. A recent podcast, um, if you're a church nerd, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's from Christianity Today, and it explores this phenomenon through one leader and one church. A leader, his name is Mark Driscoll. Um, he was su like, when I was at Moody, I wanted to be him. Um, super influential, like in the late 90s, into the aughts, into the early 2000s. But then in 2014, he stepped back from his church of 15,000 people. And within six weeks, the church was gone. Okay. And it's, and it's not so much a hit piece on Mark Driscoll. It's really interesting because it's more an exploration of this very phenomenon that I'm talking about. Why is it that we look for leaders of significant character 
excuse me, significant competency and giftedness ignore their character. Why are we shocked over and over and over again when it melts down after he or she has a fall? I, I, a recent podcast explores this. I'm going to preach about it a little bit this fall. We're going to do a series uh, in October and November called Muted. Um, the subtitle is a sermon series about why your friends don't want to be Christians. Um, and we're going to explore hypocrisy a little bit, personal and organizational hypocrisy, and why does that um, bother people so much as well it should. The question in front of us in Acts 16 is how do churches grow? How do churches grow? And what we find in Acts 16, there's like three little scenes, little vignettes about how churches grow. And, and the way the churches grow in the book of Acts couldn't be more different than the way that we seek to make our churches grow. Because the theme verse, if you've got your own Bible and you want to underline it, the theme verse of these three paragraphs, it's, it's verse 5. The churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Okay? The churches were strengthened in their faith, and they grew larger every day. And that one verse, verse 5, kind of describes all of the actions starting in verse 1 all the way through verse 15. And we're going to look at each of these three vignettes and kind of see what they have in common. We're going to see that the church grows through multiplication. The church grows through the miraculous. And the church grows through making room for women in leadership. So let's look at verse 1 through 5. I'll read it. It says, Paul, now remember, contextually, let's talk about what happened. Paul gets back from his first missionary journey. There's some trouble in the churches, right, about are we going to make Gentiles get circumcised or not? They land on a conclusion. And then Holden did really well with this last week. The Batman and Robin of the early church break up, right? Paul and Barnabas separate. Uh, and so now they're about to, Paul's about to leave on his second missionary journey, and he is building a whole new team. And the missionary journey he's going to go on, it's going to begin by going to places that he's already been, because he needs to report to those churches the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So it says this, it says, Paul went first to Derbe, and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, it's kind of like describing like Warren Niles, Youngstown. You know what I mean? It's kind of really just one blob of a place, right? Well, thought of well in the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him, Timothy, to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they grew larger every day. Paul goes back to these cities that he helped plant churches, and even though, like the last time Paul was in these cities is at the end of chapter 14. And when you flip that page to chapter 16, two to three years have gone by. Two to three years have gone by. So Paul has been in Antioch, 
kind of dealing with this disagreement, pastoring the church of Antioch. So two or three years have gone by since he was last in Lystra and Derby and Iconium. So he goes back and when he gets there, he meets a guy that came to faith under his ministry, a guy named Timothy. Timothy plays a super important role uh, in the Jesus movement. It says he's well thought of by the Christians in his neighborhood, but he's well thought of by a lot of people. In fact, there are two letters, two books in your New Testament addressed to Timothy. Timothy becomes a key player in the Jesus movement. He's a key player of the church in Philippi. He's a key player in the church in Ephesus. He's Paul's right-hand dude. In fact, Paul calls Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, his true son in the faith. Again, this is likely because Timothy probably came to faith under Paul's ministry in Lystra, Derby, and Iconium three years prior. He says that I have no one else like Timothy. He says that he served with Paul. Paul says of Timothy that he served with him like a son with his father. So when Paul meets Timothy and he finds that he's grown in the faith, that he's been so well discipled, Paul jumps at the chance. He doesn't hesitate to bring Timothy along with them on this missionary journey. Oddly, he also doesn't hesitate to circumcise Timothy. If you're remembering back a couple weeks ago, we just landed on the conclusion that circumcision isn't all that big of a deal. The Jerusalem Council said, listen, you don't have to be circumcised if you're a Gentile. But what does verse 2 or verse 1 say about Timothy? It says his mother was a Jewish believer and his father was Greek. And by this point in Judaism, Jewishness fall is matrilineal. It follows the line of the mother. It seems on the surface like Paul is contradicting what he just what the Jerusalem Council just decided in Acts 15. What he's come to Lystra and Derby and Iconium in verse 4. It says he's come to let everybody know, Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. But Timothy, Timothy is a Jew. He's an uncircumcised Jew. He's an apostate Jew. And if Timothy is going to have any ministry, if Timothy is going to have any ministry to Jews in other cities throughout the Greco-Roman world, we got to get the pair of scissors out. For Remember that for Paul, Paul has this line in 1 Corinthians, to Jews, I become a Jew. To Gentiles, I become a Gentile. He says, I want to contextualize the gospel as much as I can so that the person that's hearing me can understand it and receive it. And so in the spirit of a Jew is a Jew, uh, to, to the Jews, I become a Jew. To the Gentiles, I become a Gentile. Also recognizing that circumcision really isn't all that big of a deal. He says, Timothy, why don't you go ahead and just get circumcised? So that when we go out on these missionary journeys, I don't have this apostate, I don't have this apostate Jew with me who's, you know, just kind of wrecking us from the beginning. This is not a passage about circumcision. This is what this passage is about. But you need to explain it because it like, seems contradictory, right? This is a passage about multiplication. Paul multiplies himself into other leaders to grow the movement. Timothy becomes... Timothy becomes a believer under Paul. And now, through discipleship and multiplication, Timothy is ready to lead. Later, Timothy is sent to some of Paul's most significant and influential churches to lead those churches. Churches don't grow through the gifts of one leader only. They don't grow when all, churches don't grow when all of the ministry falls on the shoulders of one man or one woman. Churches grow 
when men and women of character, by the way, do you notice that they talk about Timothy's character, not his competency? It just says that he's well thought of, right, by neighbors. It doesn't say Timothy was a really, really good preacher, so Paul brought him with him. He said he's well thought of. It's a character statement. Churches grow when men and women of character are trained in the competency of Jesus and released into ministry. It's churches grow when leaders are multiplied. I was out uh, to coffee with someone this week, and they said, Holden's been preaching a lot this summer. Are you backing off? I said, I'm not backing off. I'm investing myself into other people, right? I'm not backing off. I'm training other leaders, right? I'm giving leaders a platform, Churches grow when leaders shepherd new believers or even longtime believers, when they are shepherded through their fear and their anxiety and their sense of inadequacy to step into ministry. I mean, you may feel at the thought of stepping into any ministry makes you feel inadequate, makes you feel overwhelmed. It may make you feel like, um, I don't know if I have the ability to do this. That makes you the most qualified person in the room. You know what the least qualified person in the room is like, oh yeah, I can do that, no problem. That's no big deal for me. That's scarier to me than someone who says, I don't know if I can do this, right? We want people that are humble. We want people that are hungry, but we want people that are humble. You may feel like your past, Holden did a good job with this. Your, your past mistakes don't prevent you from fu- future fruitfulness, right? The enemy loves to keep people sidelined by shaming them over like past mistakes, The enemy loves to keep people sidelined by shaming and guilting them over past mistakes. And you may feel like you don't know enough. You may feel like you aren't old enough. You may feel like you aren't wise enough. But listen to what Paul later says to Timothy. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. I always like to make a comment that the older you are, the older Timothy is. Right? Um... Timothy, at this point, uh, when Paul meets him in Lystra and Derby, probably isn't older than 20. But check in with me if I'm preaching this passage in my 60s, and I'll say he's probably, you know, in his mid-50s, you know. <laughs> right, Timothy ages with you, doesn't he? But he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and in conduct and in love and faith and purity. Churches grow through multiplication churches grow through a miraculous, naturally supernatural dependence on the Holy Spirit. Look at what happens next. This is like the second scene, verse 6. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. In other words, they tried to go to Asia, which is what we would call Turkey, They tried to go further into Asia, and the Holy Spirit prevented them. Verse 7. So instead of going where they are in Turkey, is they're trying to go, uh, they're on the coast of Turkey, so they're trying to go east, but the Holy Spirit prevents them. So they go north in verse 7. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. Notice, by the way, Luke equates the Holy Spirit with the Spirit of Jesus. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas, and the Holy Spirit's going to intervene a third time. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. They try to go further up into Asia. Holy Spirit prevents them. They go north. Okay, we'll go north. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit prevents them. So they get to trust, and the Holy Spirit intervenes again and gives them a vision of this Macedonian guy saying, come over to Macedonia is in Greece. Come, in, come over to Europe. Come over here to help us. I think it's really two things that are really important to know. One, Luke equates the Holy Spirit with the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the presence and power of Jesus, alive and active among his people, even as Jesus sits bodily at the right hand of God the Father. We are Christians, which means we are Trinitarians. We believe there is one God who eternally exists as three equal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all God they're all unique people. And here, God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the presence and power of Jesus intervenes. He intervenes miraculously. Notice, by the way, he also says, uh, in Luke says in verse 10, that we decided to leave for Macedonia. This is the first time the pronouns change from they did that to we did that. Luke meets up with them in Troas to go on this next little journey with them. Paul has this vision of a, of a Greek man, a Macedonian man. Macedonia is in the northern part of Greece. He asked Paul to come help them. And listen, there's been a handful of visions in the book of Acts so far. Stephen has a vision as he's stoned to death. Peter has one that prompts him to go to Cornelius' house. Paul himself has a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. In the Old Testament, God speaks through visions all the time. Visions and dreams all the time. Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Abraham, they all have visions and dreams. Visions and dreams are common ways that God speaks to his people. It is a naturally supernatural means by which God communicates with us. Muslims in uh, the Middle East are coming and have been for like 30 years now coming to Jesus in droves because in the middle of the night they have a dream of Jesus. They have a vision of Jesus. Right? It's one of the naturally supernatural ways the church grows in the book of Acts. It also grows through these miraculous signs and wonders like healing and casting out demons. The church grows through prophetic words and utterances. It grows through worship and fasting and prayer. It grows through preaching and repentance of sin. All of these things are naturally supernatural things. What we tend to do is say, these are the normal things that God does. These are the supernatural things that God does. So we'll put over here like prayer that doesn't get too crazy. We'll put over here preaching. We'll put over here Bible studies. We'll put over here like worship songs as long as we don't raise our hands. But then over here is like the crazy stuff that God does. All of it is naturally supernatural. All of it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of the things, the ways that God grows his church is through the way the Holy Spirit works in and with and through his people. The church in the book of Acts grows not because Paul is amazing, but because he and every other leader has a radical dependence on the Holy Spirit. Someone told me this week, yeah, when we walked into Regen for the first time, the presence of God was so palpable. The presence of God uh, was right there. And I'd like did a yes, right? Because that's what we're shooting for. Not so that we can have an experience, but so that there is an undeniably divine, an undeniably supernatural element to what we're doing. If we're doing anything as a church that could be equated or explained by just the hard work of some gifted people, we have a problem. 
right? We want to be a church where so much of what is going on, uh, it, it is uh, described by and defined by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit among us. Not because we're gifted, not because we're amazing, but because the Holy Spirit is among us. This is why we have naturally supernatural workshops. This is why we have quarterly days of prayer. This is why we have worship nights. We're trying to increase our dependence on the Holy Spirit because he must increase, we must decrease. So the, whole, the, the church grows through multiplying leaders, through the miraculous. And I guess the third point is kind of connected to the first point, but it's by making room for women in leadership. So this is the third vignette. Verse 11, we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. I don't know if it's like Samothrace. I don't know, are you supposed to? But I don't know, Samothrace. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. And from there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district and a Roman colony and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with them, with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized among with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agree. This is all taking place in the city of Philippi. This is another connection to your New Testament. There's a letter to a church in Philippi, the Philippians. And that church gets its start right here in Acts 16 through a woman uh, named Lydia. It's the first church that Paul plants in Europe. It's a church that loved Paul deeply. It's a church that loves Paul deeply. Now, remember that Paul usually starts his ministry in a synagogue, but because he goes and meets these women at a riverbank, a lot of scholars agree that there is no synagogue in Philippi. To have a synagogue, you needed a quorum of 10 Jewish men. So even if you had nine Jewish men and 100 Jewish women, or God-seeking women, you couldn't have a synagogue. So what are they doing? There's a group of women that on the Sabbath are meeting by a riverbank and they're praying the liturgy of the synagogue. They're praying. So Paul finds his way to them to preach the gospel to them and he meets among them a woman named Lydia. And it says that Lydia deals in purple dye. Purple dye is an extremely rare commodity at this time in history. In fact, uh, the dye from this region was used until the late 1800s for rugs and carpets. It's, it's, there's there's plant-based things in this part of the world that make purple dyes especially well. And because she's an influential woman, it seems that she's unmarried, but her money has given her a status. She's very wealthy. She's not like Jeff Bezos fly into space money wealthy, but she is, I've got some money wealthy, right? And so Lydia listens to the preaching and the Holy Spirit works on her and she believes the gospel and she offers her home as a missionary based to Paul and her team. And that seems like a small thing. Oh, she just said, come over for dinner. You can sleep here. Hospitality at this point is not a small thing. 
Hospitality in 1 Timothy 3 is a qualification for leaders in the church. Elders cannot be elders. Leaders in the church cannot lead if they're not practicing hospitality. She's demonstrating leadership here. Lydia is showing herself to be a leader. And don't miss the irony. Paul receives a vision in which a Macedonian man says, come and help us. And who is the first convert in Macedonia? A woman. I think Luke is doing something intentional there. I think Luke is saying, plot twist, even though a man said that in his vision, it's a woman that comes to faith. The next convert that's named, uh, Holden's going to take care of this next weekend, it's a young woman who's possessed by a demon. It's women. And when you look at the book of Philippians, you find that Lydia's role in this moment echoes what else we see. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, these are women, be, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard in working with me to tell others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers who are names are written in the book of life. It is easy to dismiss Euodia and Syntyche, these leaders in the, in the Philippian church, as gossipy, backbiting women. And some among us might even say deep in our hearts, well, women are always like that. But the reality is, Eudodia and Syntyche played a key role when, he, when Paul addresses leaders in the church by name, the church in Philippi, he addresses women. Timothy, speak of the devil, when Paul writes his letter to him, Paul, Paul talks to Timothy about the women in his life. He says, I remember your genuine faith because you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. One of our foundational principles as a movement here at Regen is that it is women and men partnering together as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers that fulfills God's design. It is when men and women partner together as spiritual fathers, as spiritual parents, as spiritual mothers that we see breakthrough. Where men or women dominate in leadership, there's imbalance. A year ago, we began this series. Um, a year ago, we began this series, and we asked, where are all the women? Where are all the women in Acts? It's an important question, and here's a response. In Luke's first century context, telling a story of a wealthy woman coming to faith and offering her home as a leader in the early church was enough to set most men's hair on fire. Luke gave her a speaking role. She talks, if you agree that I'm a true believer, and somewhere, as this book was first being read 2,000 years ago, some dude threw it out the window, could not believe. Paul empowers women to lead, including a woman named Junia in the book of Romans, who Paul says is outstanding among the apostles. A woman is named an apostle. Paul has no problem with women prophesying, no problem with women praying, no problem with women bringing a teaching in the gathered space, according to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul never says that a certain set of spiritual gifts are off limits to a certain gender, or that when that gender is to use those gifts, they're only supposed to use them in certain contexts. 
And yeah, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I forbid a woman to teach or have authority, but taken against the overall weight of how Paul deals with women in the New Testament, there had to be something so specific going on in the church of Ephesus, and there was. It was connected to the cult of Aphrodite. There had to be something so specific going on in the book in, in the church in Ephesus that Paul had to ban women from teaching until Timothy could get everything back in order. Let me tell you how Paul empowers women uh, in the New Testament. In the Greek of the New Testament, when Paul addresses a church, he calls them Adelphoi. He calls them brothers. He says that we all, male and female, are huios. We are sons, right? And we're in the 21st century, and when I write academic papers, I'm not supposed to put mankind. I'm supposed to put humankind, right? We don't have firemen and firewomen. We have fire people. <laughs> Fire professionals. I don't know, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so what we see, we see Paul calling men and women Adelphoi brothers or calling them Fuyas, and we think, oh, Paul, you're such a chauvinist. Can't you recognize that there's women in the room? What if Paul is elevating women by calling them men? What if Paul is saying to women, you, a woman who are left out of our society, who have no legal rights, who can't inherit a thing, you women are inheritors of the kingdom along with men. What if by calling them Adelphoi, what if by calling them Fuyas, Paul isn't demeaning women or ignoring women, but including women in a covenant of faith, a family of faith, where even women inherit everything that Jesus offers them? What if they too, what if women and men are adopted with full rights as sons and daughters, as Fuyas? It's a way that Paul elevates women by calling them sons. It's a way that Paul elevates women by calling them Adelphoi. He's not trying to ignore them. He's trying to say, no, even women have the same rights as men in the, women, in the family of God, which is why Paul says in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, because the distinctions that we have created between one another actually begin to erase in the kingdom of Jesus. Paul empowers women, Jesus empowers women, and he does so, this is important, he does so in such a way to prevent the Jesus movement from becoming a women's liberation movement. In a similar vein, Paul sets a trajectory in his letters such that freedom for slaves is an obvious conclusion of the New Testament witness. But Paul does this without making the Jesus movement an abolitionist movement. Paul recognizes that it would be so easy for the Jesus movement to stop being about the gospel of Jesus and start being about women's liberation. It could stop being about the gospel of Jesus and start being about let's free all the slaves. And so Paul walks this careful line and sets careful trajectories of theology that let us arrive at a conclusion that women are fully incorporated into the family of God in gifts and rights and authority, that slaves are to be set free. The early church grew because it made room for women in leadership. The early church grew because women like Euodia and Syntyche were co-laborers with Paul and Timothy and Clement. The early church grew because women like Lydia, who, and I think it's important that she's single, they could come into leadership and be a home-based room. We make room for women in leadership, and we don't do that by limiting men. Right? This is how we often then go about it. Right? We make diversity hires. We limit men to make room for women in leadership. 
I don't need to limit men to let women lead. In fact, we need men to be more engaged spiritually, not less. Instead, what we do is we invite women into the spaces that have been typically male. We invite women into the opportunities like preaching, like teaching, like leading out that have been typically male. We say there's no such thing as women's jobs and men's jobs. Instead, we have a leadership team that reflects who we are and who we're becoming. We give women opportunities to preach and lead in community, but most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, we communicate to women that they have been given the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Women, that you have been given the full measure of the Holy Spirit, that you have the very authority of Jesus living inside of you, that there isn't a kind of authority that he gives men and a kind of authority that gives women, but he authorizes you and empowers you by the presence of the Holy Spirit within you to lead and to go and to make disciples. The churches in Acts grow, not on the shoulders of this like super strong leader. It grows because it multiplies leaders. It depends on the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It makes room for women in leadership. These passages are all about how the church grows, and all of this is impossible apart from God's help. Which is why it's so important in verse 5, did you notice it says, the churches, in my translation, the churches were strengthened. It's a passive verb. It's the kind you're not supposed to use in your college papers, passive verbs, right? But it's important. It says the churches were strengthened. Well, who did the strengthening? Not some super gifted leader who had all the answers. No, the person that did the strengthening is the same Holy Spirit and the same Spirit of Jesus that stopped Paul and Timothy and, and Silas from heading north and heading east and instead sent them to Macedonia. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Jesus who opens Lydia's heart so that she will believe. It is the Holy Spirit who makes room for leaders, women in leadership. It's the Holy Spirit who calls us to depend on him. It's the Holy Spirit who, who, who invests in leaders and causes us to multiply in leaders. It is the Holy Spirit that we need. It is God that we need. He is the hero of the story. No leader, no human no celebrity, but Jesus. The Jesus. Steph, would you lead us in response time? Here at Regen, we do response time because we want to be like the wise builder in Matthew 7. We want to build our life on the rock of God's word and we want to be changed by it. So my invitation to you this morning is just to kind of, as you reflect on the sermon and think about this idea of the church growing through multiplication, um, the church growing through women, um, and I totally blanked it. What was your second point, honey? Dependence on the Holy Dependence Spirit. Dependence on the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me. Um, Dependence on the Holy Spirit. Just how is God getting your attention? Which one of those stuck out to you? Which one maybe kind of... Um, was a different way of thinking about things. So we're just going to take a moment and um, invite the Father just to kind of speak to you um, about what area you feel like maybe he's inviting you to step into, maybe he's inviting you to think differently about. Um, so we'll take that time and then I'll pray for us. That's Jack's uh, favorite song. He knows every word. 
and has for like six months. I, I don't, I can't, I don't understand how. Um, it is not about any hero. It is not about any competency. All that we are, all that we have as a church, yet not I, but through Christ in us. Amen. Amen. I love you. We'll see you next week.